Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. Hi, everyone. So today is part one of speaking to one of the most incredible people on the planet, Karina Diemann. We started chatting late at night, and then Karina just didn't stop. But let me tell you, she has one hell of a story to tell and I feel very humbled that she agreed to share it with me. After over three hours of chatting until after 3am in Dubai, I feel there's so much more I still wanted to speak to Karina about, but we had to stop somewhere. So let's call today the background story to Karina's journey to becoming a mum. Growing up to immigrant parents and the pressure and expectations from the South Asian community, her devastating diagnosis of stage three breast cancer, age 33, and then three years later, suffering heart failure and being told she may not make it through. Okay, let's go. Good evening, Karina. How are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's so it's good we've finally got to chat. There's been a bit of uh, toing and froing and kids sorting and time differences and power naps here and there, but we're, we've made it. <laughs> Thank God we've made it, yes. Thank you very much for um, giving up your evening to speak to me today. Um, So I start the podcast with my same question, which is how you met your husband. Um, It's quite a funny story, actually. We we married when we were 30, but we knew each other from, um, I think I was 18 years old when I first met him. And it was that point in your life when, you know, you're about to go off to uni and you're just trying to earn as much money as you can. And um, I was working a regular job um sort of Monday to Friday nine to five at uh, a local opticians and then uh on my sort of evenings or days off and stuff like that I would do like a night shift so I would work at the opticians from sort of nine to five or nine to four and then I would go home have some dinner and then do a second job um which was something stupid like 7 p.m till 2 a.m do you want to look at that now I used to do similar things when I was training to be a midwife I'd like work at basically a midwifery shift as a student midwife and yeah. then go off to Starbucks and do like a, yeah and like how, yeah. How, how did we do that without falling over <laughs> like, I don't know how I did that because like I said like this thing the other job ended at like 2am so I'd get home at 2.30 in the morning oh, no. and then be back on the other job by nine o'clock and oh, I'm my like, gosh. How did you? yeah the energy you have when you're 18 years totally. old right? so um yeah so we were both actually he was doing that job as well so the, the the second job was basically sorting out bank statements for Lloyd's Bank and we used to get this pile of statements you just had to put them into a pigeonhole for the based on the postcode they were from it was like <laughs> real difficult stuff anyway that's how we met and we still we were sort of just we were just friends for a really long time and then like kept in touch through uni just just as friends and then I guess you know after we both graduated and we'd come home we, you know we we're both from the same hometown we, we kind of hung out a bit more and thought you know I guess we are we are I should say both Indian and you know we, we were both used to just talk about how our parents were constantly trying to set us up on these dates or these sort of you know introductions as Uh our community does and they were all pretty dire and I was just like oh my god this is horrendous I met this guy and this that and the other and he was like oh my god my mum met this girl and (laughs) like it just you know 
we were sharing stories on how awful it was that our parents were trying to fix us up with other people and it, I don't know how it happened but we kind of just fell into like oh, semi-dating and, <laughs> and, and it, it, it you know it blossomed from there I think you know it was probably like, always you know, meant to be but we had to yeah, to kiss a lot of frogs before you found a friend sort of situation. <laughs> were your parents okay with it? Um, they were and they weren't. Uh, we, we've got a religion difference. So I'm a Hindu and he's a Sikh. So um, that was a bit of a cause for concern. Um, and also, you know, members of the South Asian community will know that it's almost ingrained in you from when you're quite young that when you get when you graduate and when you when you want to get married your husband has to be x y and z and you have to be you know a b and c and there's a lot of tick boxes Mm -hmm. when it comes to our community and marriage it's not really ever done what we're not told it can be done from the heart we're told that it has to be you know a professional you know this person has to be professional you have to be a professional you have to be the same cast and all these things so so we didn't have that like you know on paper he wasn't what my family had expected and I wasn't what his family expected and we did have to go through a bit of um a bit of you know persuasion and you know and and from a really early age proving that we were committed to each other and that you know regardless of what our parents thought Mm. we were really willing to to give up what we had to make them happy which sort of I look back now and I'm like god that was really quite strong of us because a lot of people you know don't have that luxury or don't have that ability and you know fortunately we Fortunately, we made our way through that. And, you know, as much as we bicker and, you know, we get on each other's nerves, it was absolutely the right thing to do because, you know, I don't think I could have done the the, the, the 10 years after our marriage with, with, with anyone else. You know, we've, we've kind of really been there for each other mm. and the relationship is, is, is super strong as a result of it. Amazing. And now then with your parents and things, does it feel like it's all settled down? And, and oh, used yeah. To, yeah absolutely and that's kind of always the way isn't it like you know you have a few bumpy years and you know it it can be a bit awkward and there's a real like adjustment period again especially with the culture of being you know being Indian or South Asian there's so much expectation put on you as um, a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law you know I guess I was a daughter-in-law who was kind of expected to conform and you know sort of live in the family home and do all of that stuff and he was a son-in-law coming into a family where my own parents had divorced and there wasn't really that strong male figure in our family. So it's almost like there was an expectation for him to step into a certain pair of shoes. And, you know, there was a lot of expectation upon both of us. And I don't think either of us particularly wanted it. And, you know, and and we had to navigate that. And and the first few years were a bit rocky and turbulent because we were just trying to figure our way out. And, you know, it's kind of like a marriage of families I get that but but ultimately the two people at the core of it sometimes suffer as a result of the mm-hmm. of the command demands of the family um and we just had to sort of back off I think actually for me and for both of us it was a point in my cancer diagnosis that actually you know everyone was a bit like well okay right you know what we want isn't important here like yeah. these two have to sort of um so yeah my, so I was obviously I was diagnosed with breast cancer um in 2013 which was only sort of three years into our marriage maybe a bit less um and it was at that point I think that we I think we realized that we couldn't keep giving our energy to our our parents or you know our extended family and at that point it had to just be about the two of us and our mm-hmm. relationship and getting me through that diagnosis and 
you know that that was a really tough time for for, for me personally there, there was just so much going on you know alongside the breast cancer diagnosis there was this sort of confusion of how you actually survive in in a mixed religion Indian married household like it was really it's, it's just so complex I think you know for anyone in in this community in the South Asian community like you're raised to you're you're told from a young age that you need to be able to stand on your own two feet and have a good job and like you know you're given everything you need to have this um, amazing education and stuff and then you get married and you're asked to sort of regress almost to to this traditional daughter-in-law who has to then you know be that be that be that daughter-in-law that society expects and I think that's really difficult to to sort of think hold on a minute ago I was meant to be totally independent and Mm -hmm. now I'm like supposed to live in a a joint family home and all of a sudden sort of have like more than one woman in the household and which isn't really what you expected when you're thinking I'm going to be this independent woman who runs her own household (laughs) like it's just really confusing and I don't think it's anyone's fault but I just think it's just it's just confusing you know being a British Asian is really sort of yeah yeah a constant flip between you know your western life and your 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 eastern cultural roots and and finding a sort of an equilibrium between the two of them so um you know my, my cancer diagnosis forced me to put me at the fore and that's something I hadn't done for a long time you know not even before I was married we we you sort of you grow up in my community and you get to a point where you start to parent your parents and that's expected of you you know you take away their burdens and you take away their pain and I think I'd done that for a long time my parents divorced when I was just over 20 years old I think I was, oh, maybe yeah, I was about 20 when they divorced and um just starting to study for my accountancy exams and mm-hmm. at that point I felt a real pressure you know to, to be the girl who helped her mum onto the you know on you know over into a new property and who helped financially emotionally and all of that sort of stuff and and I think I from that point and maybe even before that you know um I wasn't I wasn't really ever looking out for myself and Mm. you know I'm really spiritual and reflective of my past and you know try to sort of seek the lessons of everything that's gone on which people will hear as we go through this episode but you know I I definitely think that an element of my trauma has come well an element of my disease has come from my past traumas and that that stems from you know being a child and seeing um seeing things that children shouldn't see in an unhappy you know in an unhappy home in a in a, in a marriage and a relationship that my parents had which was you know abusive if you know that's that's the only way to put it um mm. emotionally and physically and we were exposed to that and you know it's hard it's hard it's really hard being the child of immigrant parents and you know there's just so much pressure to to be that first generation who becomes really established in in the UK which is it falls upon myself and a lot of my peers we we all have that stress and that pressure but for me I think I probably took it too far and it manifested in disease which caused disease in my body and 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 ultimately you know everything led to this breast cancer diagnosis which then you know ended up ironically being the best thing that happened to me because (laughs) I found myself you know like and and I say that quite openly and sometimes people think I'm a bit strange but you know I I say that that I think my breast cancer diagnosis sort of helped me realize that I was the most important person in my life and Mm. and I you know I have no regrets when it comes to that diagnosis because 
I lead a richer, fuller life as a result of it, you know, and a more grateful life. And, you know, there's less of that constant firefighting and chasing my tail and, you know, striving for money because I think as a as a teenager and as someone who went to uni, all I ever really focused on was finding a job that would make me money. And, mm. you know, I now sit here at 41 and I've had a job that makes me money. But you know what? That isn't what brings me happiness. Right. The yeah. stuff that brings me happiness is the stuff that's for free, you know, the the love and affection that comes from my family and my children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just, you know, it, it, it took a lot of learning to get to that point. Thank you. Um, that was that was a big answer. That was really interesting. Thank you. Can you um, talk? We've, we've decided we're going to not focus too much on your cancer diagnosis um, mm. and, and that story. But can you tell us um, in a nutshell um, about that kind of time in your life? Yeah, so um, I was 33 when I noticed like something wasn't quite right with my breasts. Um, for me it was an inverted nipple and an inverted nipple that was persistent and eventually sort of I'd gone to the doctors and 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 um asked their opinion and, and then sought a specialist and um you know got got the eventual diagnosis that I had a stage three breast cancer um, so this was a nipple that previously hadn't been inverted yeah it'd never been inverted before and it, it just it, it, it sort of I just noticed it one day that it had inverted and then over uh-huh. a period of a couple of weeks it became more and more inverted and you know there were other things going on like I could feel pain in my armpits and pain yeah. in my chest and I asked Dr Google, Google asked Dr Google what could be wrong <laughs> with me and uh, he told me that it was probably something very serious which made me take it seriously and you know there was there was a lot of there's a lot of testing and a lot of you know a very emotional and difficult journey that came after that um which I guess anyone can listen to sort of if you if you find me on Instagram there's there's loads of places where you can listen to that part of my journey but you know so I I arrived at 33 diagnosed with breast cancer um my treatment plan at the time was chemotherapy radiotherapy um and I had a single mastectomy and um you know, I think from 2013 to probably the end of 2014, I I was a little bit lost and, and, you know, really unsure of what, whether I would live, you know, unsure of where I was going, unsure of the relationships I had in my life. It was just, you know, I think cancer just took so much from me. It took away my confidence. It kind of took away the career that I'd always worked towards because I was pulled out of it sort of mm. overnight. I was like, yeah. you know, one day this sort of high-flying accountant and then the next day like a full you know full-time cancer patient and you know I that was really difficult I sort of faced redundancy whilst I was off sick and you know so I was thinking oh my god my career's not going to be there you know the person I was isn't there physically when I look in the mirror I don't recognize myself um I went on to sort of have both my breasts removed so my second breast was also removed I was put into a medical menopause um, I lost my hair, I lost my eyelashes, I lost my eyebrows. And for me, I felt like I just lost all forms of my femininity. You know, mm-hmm. there I was like, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have any breasts and I was only in my 30s, you know, yeah. and physical image. Did, I'm not saying like I was, I was never sort of a booby person, but having boobs was important to me. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I lost that. And then, you know, I lost my ability to, I didn't have any periods and, you know, that kind of brings, you know, as much as you get frustrated when you have periods that, you know, that are really untimely or, you know, get in the way of holidays and stuff, they remind you that you're a woman, you know, and like, you know, losing that sort of, I think it feels like you've prematurely aged when you're put into an artificial menopause in your 30s. And, 
And I kind of just thought, you know, like I'm just a newlywed and this, we didn't sign up for any of this, you know. I know you say in sickness and in health, but you never in your wildest dreams think that it's going to be that acute that early on. So mm-hmm. um, it was a really difficult time for us, you know, went through that cancer diagnosis. And I think, you know, one of the very important conversations that we'll go on to have is that just before I started chemotherapy, there was a conversation between myself and my oncologist on where I stood when it came to motherhood. And, you know, he just said, look, I know you're married and I know you don't have children. How important is that to you? And, you know, it was massively important to me. I always wanted to be a mum. Like I don't, I don't even remember a time where I would have doubted being a mum, you know, I just, you know, I was probably that person like, like, you know, we have a massive extended family. I have lots of younger cousins. And I remember like, I'd always babysit them. I'd push them around in their push chair and like always have that maternal um, side to me. And, you know, I'd always imagined a future with kids. It, you know, it was never like, if I have kids, it's always when I when, have kids yeah. and, you know, for, for me in terms of conversations. So, you know he said how important and I just said it's massively important you know if I survive this like I really I can't see a future without children you know that that that's something that I would love I like and I'd done my research and I'd said to him you know I know that I need to think about preserving my fertility and he said yeah that's the conversation I'm coming on to what do you want you know what do you think what do you want to do and you know you have these two options you could take this drug that that I'll give you and um hope that when you come out of treatment there's a point in time where you can take a pause from your from from your long-term medication and see if you ovulate naturally and you know if having a baby is an option for you and we we, you know we can see how we go four or five years down the line and then I said to him or I could have IVF and and harvest some eggs and he said yeah that is the second option but it's not one that he would have particularly recommended so the issue was that I had a hormonally sensitive tumor so my tumor was feeding 100% off of estrogen and progesterone in my body so going through yeah so going through IVF would mean injecting hormones on in me that were ultimately feeding the cancer that was trying to kill me so it was a real sort of vicious circle that you know if I wanted to be a mom I had to pump myself with hormone but pumping that so my, my that hormone into myself increased my risk of aggravating the cancer I was um diagnosed and living with so we ultimately ended up um being asked to make a bit of a risk-based decision and we made the decision to undergo IVF and that's you know I always say that's very personal um, and it's very dependent on your circumstances as well. I mm-hmm. guess I was fortunate that my tumour was surgically removed. So the large mass was surgically removed before I went through IVF. So that was almost risk reductive for me because we knew that the, 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 the tumours themselves weren't inside of me. So if we were feeding anything, it would be rogue cells rather than right. lumps yep. um, of cancer. And and you would hope that then chemo would come and clean that up Um after the IVF process so that's what we did and um it was one of the most difficult things I had done in my life up until that point you know um thinking about preserving my own life at the same time as creating a new life was just mentally oh a black you know it was just a black hole of confusion and devastation and grief and so many things and you know I've written about it recently on, on my on my grid that you know, my daughter, Amala, who ultimately was born as a result of that um, lot of harvesting, she she came out of a period of real sorrow and despair. You know, it wasn't a case of 
we went into IVF at that point with any sort of hope mm. we, we definitely didn't you know and I remember coming out of my egg collection and the next day having a call from the embryologist and she was so chirpy on the phone and she <laughs> said Queen, I just want to tell you you know you've frozen we you know we've frozen 12 embryos and you should be really pleased with that result it's amazing and you know I wish you all the best with your ongoing oncology treatment and I didn't even say more than a word to her and just said yeah thanks and put the phone down because I didn't want to believe at any point that yeah. those embryos would come to life because at that point I was so fearful of my own life mm-hmm. um and you know and I don't just sit there and think you know did I did I just make these tiny babies for no reason whatsoever and will that be my only lasting legacy if cancer kills me um it was a really difficult time so 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 that you know from, from a breast cancer diagnosis point of view I think the IVF journey um was incredibly complex and, and and you know it played a massive role in 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 the future of my life of as someone who's had cancer but ultimately became a mum it's sorry I'm almost sitting here like mouth agape because there's just so much going on um all at once that you're having to deal with mm. did I read as well yeah. that you had um 14 days to to do the idea 14 days yeah 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 there's there was and I, that, that's quite common with people who go into fertility preservation um as a result of a cancer diagnosis you're not given sort of time to go round after round you're just told this is your one round and you know you the priority I mean the words from my oncologist were always and I say it time and time again um he just said to me queen and my job is to save your life not to create a new life mm. and and that is the crude reality of, you know, someone who's faced with cancer. Um, so he he just said to me, look, we can't waste time. I need you in the chemo chair. So you have 14 days because 14 days is what it takes to to get, you know, your body ready and to get the to get your eggs collected. I guess you don't have that luxury if, you know, I guess many people who have round after round of IVF, they, they'll, they'll maybe down regulate and then they'll, yeah. you know, they'll go on like maybe a, a longer period of, of medication to get the best result in terms of egg collection. Um, we don't have that uh, gift as the cancer patient going into IVF treatment. You just have this really short period of time to, to grab what you can, you know, and it's almost like, you know, you're jumping out of a burning building and you've got to get what you can out of there and you know that's your one shot and you don't get to go back in and you know you have to hope and pray that that, that is the best result and and fortunately for us it was a really positive result I think the the silver lining is that I went into IVF not as someone who struggled with fertility problems so yeah technically my egg reserve was pretty good mm-hmm. um as someone in their th- you know in their 30s so 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 that was I guess a positive on our side which led to us sort of harvesting those 12 embryos um which which ultimately ended up being you know my life savior in the years to come mm. and at what point after um after having your treatment did you start thinking about um using those embryos and, and starting a family I think I look I, I always knew that it wouldn't be easy like I you know I, I knew that this would be complicated but I I'd, I'd flip between the two. It wasn't like something that just one day I woke up and I thought, right, I'm going to think about having a baby. I think I always used to think, if I survive cancer, what do I want that future to look like? And I'd maybe have a couple of months of like really optimistic, okay, I want this and I want this and I want this. And then it would just take one trigger to come into my life for me to think, 
why are you so naive and why are you so stupid and why are you trying to dream about this reality that when the when your actual reality is that you might not even survive the treatment or you might find you have a recurrence in a couple of years and you never actually become a mum so I was always sort of at seesawing back and forth mm-hmm. that like oh yeah I can I can I can believe that's going to happen and then it's never ever going to happen that would constantly be sort of going on in my head and then I would ask my oncologist, you know, I would have three monthly reviews and then six monthly reviews. And every time I spoke to him, I brought up like the the, the conversation about pregnancy and being a mom. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously when I was in active treatment, that was just not not something that was happening. And yeah. then after sort of I'd, I'd after I'd had my active treatment, I would just said to him, look, where do I stand on this? You know, what when can I try for a baby? And, you know, what what is the prognosis for me over the next three to five years? And you know, in the first three years, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Every time I asked it, he would sort of come back with these stats that, that would just say, look, even on your medication, the chance of recurrence is so high in the first three years that I would never recommend you try to get pregnant. You know, if you take your medication away from it, obviously the, the risk of recurrence is higher. And, you know, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to bring a child into this world and then me not be here for that child and you know that that was really difficult so the first year or so I kind of really had to sit and think about what I wanted you know this this dream pregnancy that I'd always sort of envisaged in my future like you know having a bump of my own and Mm. all of that romantic romantic side of being pregnant um I'd always dreamt of that weirdly and I started having conversations with myself you know what's the most important thing here is it is it the pregnancy or is it the child and you know obviously very quickly came to the conclusion that it wasn't about that nine months it was about the rest of my life if Mm. I was blessed with one and so I started you know looking at my my options you know I, I was getting the message from my team that being pregnant myself within the next three years wasn't really on the horizon and I was sort of approaching 40 and just wondering like if I waited that that long you know if I waited till I was 38 39 would it actually ever happen naturally you know would my body be able to carry a pregnancy given everything I'd been through yeah. and 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 I was, and I started to think you know like maybe I have to ask for help and 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 then I I began researching surrogacy so I think I really got into that in about in sort of about the sort of 2015 I really sort of started heavily researching surrogacy and immersing myself in the surrogacy community here in the UK and Mm -hmm. fact gathering and 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 trying to get my head around what it would involve you know to, to to ask someone else to carry my child for me and I think it took so much work you know to 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 accept that I had to I had to give it up that dream of of being pregnant and I had to give up that romantic notion of, you know, my husband touching my belly and, you know, having a preg doing a pregnancy test together, give all of that up to ultimately be a mum because that, that, that was my main aim. And so I, 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 I quite, with it, well, by the time I started researching it, you know, I think my head was in that space of, you know, oh, this is how you're going to do it. This is how you're going to do it. And I was there. And then I would say to my husband, like, you know, I can't do this myself. Like, you know, he's one of those people who buries his head in the sand. So, you know, I would just say, like, you know, you know, I can't have, you know, I can't carry this baby. And he'd be like, we'll work something out. We'll work something out. And I'm like, I don't think you quite get it. Like that there isn't a work something out, you know, there's there's no other option other than we ask someone else to help us. And he didn't quite get it at first. And I don't think he wanted to believe that we yeah. would need, need that level of help. 
Um, and then one of my friends said to me, oh, Queenie, you know what blokes are like, like you just keep going and you just keep plugging away at it and you get all of what you need to do. You know, you get your house in order for the day that he turns around and realises that he is ready for it. Um, so that's what I did. You know, I did all my research. I looked at all of our options and I looked at agency, sur- agency based surrogacy. I, you know, I touched on overseas based surrogacy. I looked at independent surrogacy and I like looked at all. I like started gathering the stories of hope. So if you ever asked me, like, prove it, I could just <laughs> look this person, this person, like, you know, like just got it all ready. And then eventually that day did come and he was like, okay, like if, if this is what you're saying, then, 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 you know, hit me up, tell me what you, tell wow. me what you found out. And, and yeah. And so there you were, you went, you <laughs> bent down and you picked up your giant yeah. folder, popped it on the table, Ex- the dust yep. came off in there. Exactly that. Like, yeah, pretty much that situation. I just said, right, here you go. Like, this is this forum and this is this agency. So this is this forum and this is this agency. And these are our options. And, you know, and like, at that point, we had our embryos. So I was like, you know, we, we could use these embryos. And genetically, this child is still mine and yours. It's just someone else cooking it for us. And yeah. I had it all ready. And he, he slowly came around to the idea. And he was like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. And obviously, we want to save, you know, want to preserve your life and create this new life. So let's just do the best thing that we can. So we started looking into surrogacy and, you know, a lot more actively you know went to some conferences and stuff with 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 a couple of the UK-based agencies and I guess if people want to know more about different types of surrogacy um I'll just point them to our podcast The Intended Parent um where, where you can learn about how why an agency is different to independent and why overseas is different like that's a really complex conversation but ultimately we landed on independent surrogacy here in the UK which meant that we basically meant met our face uh, met our surrogate uh, via a private closed Facebook group dedicated to the surrogacy community and um you know that was that's a community that I'm really grateful for because without mm. that community I wouldn't have my children um but it, it, it meant we had to put a lot of blood sweat and tears into into our journey and you know I guess my husband sort of got on board with this sort of in the early 2016 and um we in the summer of 2016 took a holiday which was kind of to celebrate our end of life with cancer and our sort of vision of the future and you know we were really positive we boarded this plane to Vancouver and we were kind of full of hope like this is a brilliant time you know I'd had all my surgery I'd had all my treatment and you know we decided that we were going to grow our family through surrogacy and we're in such a positive place and within 48 hours of landing in Vancouver I began to feel really ill struggled to breathe um struggled to eat anything drink anything um I was finding myself gasping for breath um and fast forward sort of 24 hours I found myself in A&E in a hospital in Vancouver um slipping in and out of consciousness with sort of sati by my side um in this country that we you know we knew nothing about we just sort of found ourselves wound up in in an A&E department on a, on a bed in a, in in a ward um and these doctors just kept coming in saying they couldn't understand what was going on with me um I was wired up to so many machines over sort of a period of 24 hours and none of those machines were giving an answer on what was wrong with me but all they could tell was that my heart was racing my oxygen saturation was falling 
and I was in and out of consciousness um and I needed sort of quite a lot of help to breathe um I'd had cannulas in every vein in my hands that they'd sort of exhausted my hands and um, my fingers and ended up going into my feet and my toes with cannulas because they just couldn't get any lines, any more lines into me. Um, People were coming into the room sort of masked up thinking I'd had some sort of real tropical disease that was airborne and no no one was allowed to come into the room. Um, Oh, God. And, you know, Sati was sort of continuously asked my medical history. And every time a new doctor came in, they asked the same questions and he was getting more and more frustrated. You know, people were trying to talk to me, but I couldn't answer them. He was then having to repeat himself time and time again. And he was just like, can't someone read the notes? Every time you come in here, read the notes because you're stressing us out, asking the same questions again and again. And we went through about eight or nine different medical teams coming to my bedside and um, drawing a blank. Gosh. And I think it was, a, yeah, and, and and all that time, you know, like, we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there when my eyes are able to open thinking, how we got here, like, yeah. and are we even going to get out of here? And I think it was by the time sort of the eighth team came in, um, a doctor walked into the room and just said to Sati, like, Mr. Deman, I have to, I have to tell you, your wife is acutely ill. Um, we can't currently work out what's wrong with her. But we know she's, she she's very, very poorly. And at this point in time we can't see her making it through the next 24 hours um and they just said look we advise you call whatever family over from the UK that you need to call over to say your goodbyes to her because there's every chance she'll never come back to the UK um and at that point you know Misat and I held each other's hands and did you hear that were you awake for that conversation yeah 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 I was I was aware of that conversation and I just you know we just looked at each other and I don't think he ever he never let himself believe that that would happen and I kind of just thought this can't be it like I can't have survived cancer <laughs> like less than a year ago to die here in a foreign country away from my family like I cannot let that happen and we held on to that like both of us held on to the fact that regardless of what anyone told us we were not going to let it end here um my sister did fly out from the UK just in case um, things did go really bad and, 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 and you know, and, and, and to support us in case we sort of came out the other end because we knew it wouldn't be an easy journey back. But, but you know, ultimately we got to this point, um, we were in A&E, we were told this devastating news and then they said, look, we've got one more team to come in and that's going to be cardiology. We're just getting them down and, and, and sort of within the next hour, a team of cardiologists arrived at my bedside and, just they were incredible they sort of held my hand one of one of the doctors held my hand another doctor sort of put an ultrasound on my chest and another was just sort of reading the notes and like looking at my history and this guy holding my hand just said Karina I know you can't breathe I'm not going to ask you you know anything more than one single question and you don't have to answer me you just have to squeeze my hand you don't have to you know I just need a squeeze of the hand to this one question listen to it carefully and I will be able to tell you what if if I could I I will be able to diagnose you based on what you say here or what you do here so I just said to him he, he said to me um when you had chemotherapy were any of your drugs red in color and it was almost like something out of a movie. Like when, you know, when, when someone says something and then you like the room swells yes. and you go back in time. Like, yeah. It was a bit like that. He asked me that question and I just like ended up being back on my chemo ward 
with a com- having a conversation with my chemo nurse about this drug that she was pumping through my vein and it was red. And I said to her, like, why are you sitting with me through this whole infusion for this drug? Because there's loads of other patients. And she said, oh, this drug is particularly um, dangerous if it leaks out of the vein or, you know, she, she sort of told me a whole load of stuff about this drug and it was in this bag with a big fat toxic X on it. And, and so I, was just, I just squeezed his hand. Like I knew, I knew immediately that my drug was red and I squeezed his hand. And at the same time, the guy on the ultrasound machine called them all over to the ultrasound machine and they were looking at the screen and someone hits this button on the wall and like all these sirens start going off. And then they're just sort of shouting like, she's in acute heart failure, get her to cardiac intensive care now. Um, and that was it. The guards went, the rails went up on the bed. All of my machinery was just like carted down a corridor. And the next thing I know, I was in the intensive care unit. Sati was by my side and a lady who was, um, what is known as a cardio-oncologist was at my bedside and said, look, Rina, what has happened to you is that the chemotherapy you were given three years ago has slowly been poisoning your heart and you now arrive at this point at which you have a heart that no longer works because it's been so damaged over the years. Um, And at that point, she said to me, like, this isn't ever going to get better. Um, Your heart is currently working at 6% and we don't actually... Six. Six, six, yeah. And she said, and we don't actually know how you're still coherent right now because you shouldn't be. Um, and then she just said, you know, it's it's a really dark time. Like I know you can hear me and you can talk to me right now, but but this is a, this is going to be like really really difficult to get through. And they made it really clear that you know nothing was going to be fixed overnight. That this you know this this was a poor prognosis and that we should be prepared for the worst. And they kept reminding us off that. But I made it through the next 24 hours and, um, you know, it was it's like medically it's a really complex situation. But what had basically happened is that my heart had um, dilated. It was like falling apart. I I see it as falling apart. Like, you know, if you've got a heart there where the middle of it meets and this was just like slowly over the years, it was just opening up. I get like Uh like like and then when it opens up, it's unable to pump. So if you think our hearts are like tight, closed, they need to be under pressure blood to have the pressure to yeah to maintain a blood pressure and to get blood around your body and because my heart was so dilated it couldn't pump anything like you know there was no pump function so that meant that 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 blood wasn't reaching parts of my body and equally it meant that because nothing was pumping out instead fluid fluid water was going in and that water had then sat onto my lungs and that's what was causing me um breathing problems and 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 that's why I, like I was feeling like I was drowning the whole time and it was because of this this fluid that was on my lungs so eventually they sort of they couldn't just take all the fluid off because if they took all the fluid off my blood pressure would drop and I just wouldn't be alive so the, it, it was really complex and they kept saying you know we know that she's got water in her but we can't take the water out because it's like pulling like pulling the valve off a tire you know if you pull that pressure out it's just going to go flat and she's just just never going to survive it so you know we we ended up getting to the point where I was there for 24 hours I survived that I survived 48 hours and ultimately survived two weeks in the intensive care unit um and I wasn't able to walk or anything but I was very much alive you know and I felt better in myself and then I was taken onto a ward and from there discharged into I guess Vancouver city (laughs) and like by this point we've already been in Vancouver for like four weeks on what was meant to be a 10-day holiday um and then 
we were told that I wouldn't be allowed to fly, that I was too unwell. So we would have to sort of set up home in Vancouver for a period of time. So we rented an apartment. We stayed out there. And then eventually, um, I think we'd been in Vancouver for a total of eight weeks. We were allowed to fly home with medical assistance. And I was in a wheelchair um, and came home with sort of an oxygen tank and and a nurse on standby. And I was just praying that I would get back to the UK. Yeah. That, that, that was the most important thing that I just got onto home soil you know and and then and then we dealt with everything after that and miraculously I made it through the flight and you know got down at Heathrow and I was so relieved to just just touch UK soil you know Mm. it was so precious to me at that point and got home and was you know referred to a really good cardiologist up in London and along you know along with some cardiac rehab and a lot of medication and you know a heck of a lot of grit and grit and you know determination to get better over the next 12 months I rehabbed myself to a point at which I was wheel free of my wheelchair my heart function began to improve and you know I was starting to lead a semi-normal life and you know it I don't know how it happened but you know I think the mind plays a massive role in that um and you know I was surrounded by an incredible team of medics and professionals who who were just supporting me through this and you know willing me to get better and and better and and ultimately I did you know like when I turned 40 I like trekked the Himalayas and that was that was because I felt like I needed to do that because I needed to just feel alive and 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 just acknowledge how incredible this body I have um is after going through you know not just losing parts of it to cancer and you know sort of killing parts off through chemo like it survived this massive incidence of of heart failure in a foreign country and come back you know come back beautifully um (laughs) I'm just sitting here just (laughs) it's almost not like it could even be real what you've been through Mm -hmm. the the amount that you've been through and um and your positivity talking about it as well is is just amazing. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, I'm sitting here complete I actually know your story, but I'm still completely dumbfounded <laughs> about how you've Aww. just just everything you have overcome. It's it's unbelievable. We're only like we've not even got started on the kids yet. And <laughs> I was just about to say, like, we said we weren't gonna yeah, talk about know, the illness but, that much, but now we've talked about it loads. <laughs> but it's just unbelievable. Um and how how like you've not how was Sati like watching like being by you in hospital in Vancouver yeah I mean god I can't imagine like you know it's so difficult for the partner and sometimes I think actually it's harder for them than it is for the patient and and I've said that before in terms of like both my diagnosis because when you're unwell as a patient like the whole focus is on you and everyone's there trying to get you better and supporting Mm. you and then there's this person who's just standing there thinking you know that's my entire life in that you know we we signed up to a life together like and he just has to stand back and watch you know and he you know like I said like people will laugh because we do bicker like like cat and dog but ultimately (laughs) like (laughs) you know you wouldn't think we've been through what you've been we've been through if you sat in a room with us but you know ultimately we're so um we're so invested in everything together you know it was never about my diagnosis and just me being sick it was about getting him through it at the same time and you know with my heart failure it was about both of us getting through it and you know he never ever gave up hope in that situation and you know it's 
it's a real credit to him that he actually, you know, he was there and stood by my side and, and saw us through it. And, you know, we've been rewarded four times over for, for, for that, um, for all of the pain and adversity that we, we faced at that point in our, in our lives. And, mm. you know, we did come through it and like, you know, as we will eventually get to, <laughs> we now yeah. have an incredible, um, we have an incredible life and, you know, one that we could never even have dreamt of when, when, when those dark, dark days came came away can I ask one really stupid question just because um I guess maybe because I live in Dubai and it's everything's insurance based were you completely were you covered um oh my Vancouver god that was it you know what that's not a stupid question that's a really important point to raise because we'd gone to Vancouver and um I basically since my breast cancer diagnosis was really cautious with the insurance I took when I went on holiday uh-huh. so because a regular travel insurance policy won't cover you for anything cancer related so I would always take out my specialist cancer insurance um when I fell ill in Vancouver I had two travel insurance policies so one which was this um breast cancer based specialized uh product from uh-huh. from from a certain insurer And then the second was just my regular HSBC bank account offered you travel insurance. And they'd written to me saying, you look like, you know, we know you've had a cancer diagnosis, any illness related to cancer, we won't be covering you. But, you know, if you break your leg, you can claim on us like we're still here for you. So we Sati started calling around because the bills were huge. You know, the bills that were rolling in in Vancouver were massive. Um, So he started ringing around the insurance companies to see where we stood on this. And the breast cancer one was horrendous the cover it offered us was really poor um and then at the same time he rang HSBC and he just said look um where do we stand you know what's going on here and at at the beginning of my diagnosis they couldn't and even now they can't 100% say my heart failure was caused by chemo that that's the likely scenario but there's no way of hard and fast proving it so HSBC ran a massive review of my case they looked at all my medical records like from way back when and the um, breast cancer one were like, yeah, do you know what? We'll give you like 50 quid and put you up in a two-star hotel. And Sati was like, how can I take my sick wife to a two-star hotel? And they wouldn't, you know, they were like, we'll give you bread and breakfast and that's it. And we were thinking, this is Vancouver. It's not a cheap place to stay, mm. you know. And then HSBC rang back and they just said, look, based on what we're told, and we know that there is an assumption that this is based on your cancer diagnosis, there is no evidence that can categorically say that's what caused your heart failure. So we now treat this as a heart, a, a disease of the heart separate to your cancer and we will cover you. Wow. And they they were incredible. They were like, do you know what? From the second you leave the hospital, you're entitled to five-star accommodation. We will find the place for you if you need oh, us to, amazing. or you can find it and claim back. Yeah, and then they're like, we will cover you breakfast, dinner and lunch. We'll cover you for any taxis to and from the hospital. We will cover you. Like my one thing I say to people, if they haven't got travel insurance, or even if they have, like ditch it and get, get an HSBC advance or premier account because the service we had was honestly second to none, even to the point at which, you know, I was flown home business class with a nurse. Really? Um, they, God. They, they, yeah, they brought us all the way back to the UK. I had a team with me who met us as soon as we landed in the UK, drove us straight to my doorstep, brought everything into the house for us, even including like stopping to get us bread and milk and stuff like oh, wow. they were absolutely phenomenal. And the the bill, the, the eventual bill that, that HSBC picked up, picked up for us was in excess of £180,000. Wow. And if we didn't have that insurance, like we would have lost our home, you know, it's not the sort of money that we just have hiding no. away in the bank. So, um, yeah, 
know, the insurance-based question is a really important one. And, you know, what, you know, we could never have predicted that I would have heart failure when we got on that plane to Vancouver. But thank flipping God we had (laughs) the HSBC advance card. And the irony, the irony is that three weeks before, Satie had gone into the branch to cancel that travel insurance, to cancel that account, because it was no longer covering me, like, fully, and I was always buying a separate policy, and he was like, there's no point in us paying for this, but the lady at the counter said, to to cancel, you have to put it in writing, and thank God he's, like, never gets around to doing things, because he never got around to writing the letter, he never got around to cancelling the policy, and thank God. Like, and now we're never going to cancel it for the rest of our lives. No, gosh. Well, if HSBC <laughs> yeah. wants to sponsor your podcast. Yeah. Then, yeah. Oh my God, that is such a good point. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Anyone listening? <clears throat> <laughs> okay, we're going to stop there and I'll be back next week with Karina as we learn about her journey to motherhood and the other incredible woman involved in her story. If you want to find Karina on social media, then she's on Instagram at Karina Demon. As always, details will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening and definitely tune in next week to hear the rest of Karina's amazing story. Bye.